I am not uh, your pastor, John. I am a different pastor. Uh, my name, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Carl Gaelic, and it is my privilege to uh, bring the word of the Lord for a while. Just a brief little background. I've been in the ministry 38 years, retired for one, and thanks to your pastor, John, I now have to do retired uh, in air quotes, but that's good. <laughs> It's a delight for the, to uh, be here and to do that, to give them a break. I'd like to welcome all of our online folks. There's two people especially I want to address uh, online. Uh, one is my mom. Hi, mom. Uh, good to see you. She doesn't get to hear me preach a lot, so she always pulls online. So good to see you, mom. And uh, Pastor John, if you're watching from Michigan, pick up the remote, press off, walk away. Hugo and I are going to run things just fine, aren't we, Hugo? Everything is fine. Everything is fine. <laughs> I am from Chicago, so don't worry about it. Kind of comes, kind of comes naturally. So, 38 years in the ministry. Um, started out in uh, East Texas and went to Dallas Fort Worth area for a while. Then uh, I switched cultures, almost switched countries, moved from Texas to Minnesota. You don't find a lot of us right there in, in Texas to Minnesota, despite the objections of my daughter, uh, and who was in eighth grade at the time, but that's a whole other story for a different time and place, isn't it? So that being said, uh, served uh, God's people in Minnesota and have some delightful and wonderful friends up there. Spent nine years or 18 winters in Minnesota. Uh, you get the math if you know if you've been there. So having to do that, then uh, from there to uh, uh, St. John in Rochester, Michigan, doing that. So from uh, that part of the world as well for a number of years, and then uh, Lutheran Church Extension Fund asked me to come to work for them. Started out as a consultant asking pastors and congregations two questions: What's God's vision, and how are you going to fund it? And so it was, uh, you can make a career out of that. <laughs> and uh, I did for seven years and concluded my time with the Lutheran Church Extension Fund as vice president of ministry support doing that. And uh, what a delight that was. It really is, we'll tough to ask that question sometime in a worship series. What's your vision? How are you going to fund it? Because those two questions apply not only to the congregations, not only to thrive, but to your life. And all that as part of it. Anyway, when we started on that. So that was my life in that time. And uh, then uh, was ready to retire Peace Church in Naples, Florida. They called me and asked me to be their pastor. And I did with a primary focus on rearranging and remanaging the vision and the debt, doing what I was consulting. It's really God's opportunity. He really kind of said to me, okay, Carl, put up or shut up. Stop consulting and now go do it. So uh, we had a chance to do that at Peace Church and reorganize their debt, and then I retired and came here. What a delight it is. Pastor John, by the way, has been my pastor uh, before. Uh, I lived in all these places while I was with the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Uh, I could live wherever I wanted. you know how exciting that was for me to hear the first time? You can live wherever you wanted. It turns out that my wife, Mira Louise, and her mom were in need. So we moved into Gainesville to support and assist my mom. That's where Pastor John became, her mom, that's where Pastor John became my pastor when he was there at First Lutheran. So 
helped him work through his doctoral dissertation and lots of other issues there. This was a lot of fun. And began to respect him with all honesty. We're not only friends, but I deeply respect his mind. He's uh, very sharp and a great teacher in many, many aspects. So that's where I came from. But the thing I want you to know most about me is that's all kind of yada yada, and it's a delight to be here. And, uh, but um, I just want you to know of my calling, because this, sun, or this Sunday's theme in 1 John is all about making it personal, that God's word by design is to take it off the philosophical, theological, uh, out of the hypothetical, out of the distance mechanisms that we all have to keep people away and get down to it being personal. What does the word of God mean to you? How has it changed you? How have you failed with it? How has God restored you? Not in general, but you. I uh, was called to the ministry, true story, called to the ministry in first grade. I never went through the fireman policeman stage. It was a little bit confusing for my first grade teacher because we had to draw pictures of what we wanted to be. And a first grade's picture of a pastor at the time kind of looked like a man in a dress. So <laughs> it took a while to sort that out. No, that's, and figure all that out. It was a stole that was there, and that was a robe. And, and uh, it was that far back, if you can remember some of you back then, it was uh, the, uh, it wasn't just, just the robe, but it was the, the black gown covered by the white, and it's very elaborate. But I did. I never wanted to be anything else. I never wanted to do anything else. I never wanted to do anything else. It was kind of amazing because those who were skeptics, like some aunts of mine, went, oh, he's never going to make it. There's a few times I had to sit inside of the principal's office and kind of go, and young man, what do you want to do? Oh, I hate the fact that I got to answer this. So it is my life's work, my life's calling, my life's desire to bring the word of God from where it is and bring it to where it's not, which is why I so appreciate the opportunity to serve here at Thrive, because that's our vision and mission is what is, how can we're going to affect, how can we make changes? What difference does it make to your heart, to your life, to you personally? That's the key to it. So to try to set that up, then what we're going to do is I'm going to have Hugo. By the way, um, if you're visiting or unaware, the, this is the, the, the official garb of Thrive for this worship series. And I thought I was, I thought I was making it happen until I ran into Hugo. Hugo, you got to come up and show us. Well, I, I, said, yeah, okay, so. I got uh, Pastor John, the grass skirt thing. Is that a bit much? Uh, <laughs> so just when I thought I had cleared the, cleared the bar. So thank you. Hugo. <laughs> So we're going to start, I'm going to ask you to go to pass around a microphone, and I'd like for you to um, speak in the microphone, introduce yourself, and uh, tell us of the greatest shame that you have. Tell us how God has reached into that shame and touched you and how you've confessed that, and give us some opportunity to know the details of that. No better way to clear a room, right? <laughs> I get that. But yet, that's kind of the point. 
And we're not going to do that in any kind of artificial way. <laughs> I've also been trained as a marriage and family therapist. And uh, that's the kind of thing that's hard enough to do in a counseling room, with it, right, with, with people, with not a, a group setting. It's not the appropriate place to time. But that is the role of the spirit. And that's my prayer is today, is that that's what the spirit does to you. It goes past all the hypotheticals, all the theologicals, all the institutionals. All of you who are missing Pastor John, forget about it. I'm here for a while. <laughs> and get on with this. What does the Spirit say to you this morning? What are you trying to hide from him that he already knows? <laughs> I love trying to hide from God, right? It's like, you got to be kidding me, right? We got to be kidding me. So that's kind of where we're going today, and that's what I want to pray. The Spirit touches you, and we all get some sense of how that is. So we're going to take a little bit deeper look into not only the, first, first, the letter of 1 John and my assigned text, which I'll give to you just now, um, but I want to look at the person of John. Um, I don't, this may be theologically incorrect, and please don't tell my seminary professors, but John is my favorite disciple. You're not really supposed to have favorites like favorite kids. And the Gospel of John is really my favorite gospel because it's so profound and, more importantly to me, so simple Greek <laughs> that I could read it and keep up with it. You know, to find out that John was called the beloved disciple. It seems as though, biblically and historically, that John had the deepest, most personal relationship, and we'll cover that, and it looks as though like John wants that to happen to you. The way he writes, the way he weaves, the way he brings truth from this huge, sort of magnanimous, enormous subject matter down to you. Understand it, feel loved by it, and be changed because of it. Let's go to God in prayer. Gracious God and Father, thanks for the gathering that we have here this morning. We pray that your spirit does that. We're not going to pass a mic around, but we are going to ask for your spirit to touch each and every heart and life and understand how thorough and how incredibly personal your word is. Thank you for that. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's see what it says here. This is John writing. I write this, and by the way, Consider John is uh, an old man writing this, and so he's kind of got this um, uh, grandpa-ish heart. I relate to a grandpa-ish heart. I is a grandpa-ish. Uh, and so he's kind of going, as the words he uses, the frame of reference, it's all very gentle and loving, even when he's challenging. I write this, dear children, to guide you out of sin. This is from the message. But if anyone does sin, we have a priest friend in the presence of the Father, Jesus Christ, righteous Jesus. When he served as a sacrifice for our sins, he solved the sin problem for good, not only ours, but the whole world's. Here's how we can be sure that we know God is the right way, or we know God in the right way. Keep his commandments. Someone claims, I know him well, but doesn't keep his commandments. He's obviously a liar. His life, doesn't, his life doesn't match his words, but the one who keeps God's word is the person in whom we see God's mature love. This is the only way to be sure we're in God. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God 
key phrase. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life Jesus lived. My dear friends, I'm not writing anything new here. This is the oldest commandment in the book. You've known it from day one. It's always been implicit in the message you've heard. On the other hand, perhaps it is new, freshly minted as in both Christ and in you. The darkness fading away and the true light already blazing. Let me draw your attention to that last phrase. John loves to, to mix his verb tenses because the truth is already blazing. The truth has already happened. The truth has already occurred. Anyone who claims to live in God's light and hates a brother or sister is still in the dark. It's the person who loves his brother and sister who dwells in God's light and doesn't block the light from others. I love that. Doesn't block the light from others. But whoever hates is still in the dark, stumbles around in the dark, doesn't know which end is up, blinded by the darkness. I remind you, my dear children, your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. You veterans were in on the ground floor, and you know the one who started all this New newcomers have won a big victory over the evil one. Let's take a look then. This, I have to kind of pick pieces of this because um, the, to try to ferret out and flesh out all the, the work of God in this text would be amazing. So we're going to kind of begin with basically John. Can you read that? Yeah, John, the beloved disciple. So to begin with, as I mentioned to you earlier, John has a very special relationship and identifies himself in the Gospel of John as the beloved disciple. Um, I'm trying to think of what might be the rough equivalent, and I hate the phrase, (laughs) but I'm going to give it to you anyway, BFF, (laughs) best friends forever. You know, I don't think that John and Jesus would understand or accept that language. Either way, uh, the point being is that they were that close. There's a lot of one of the first disciples called by Jesus, so he was kind of first on board uh, with his brother James. So he's, James is a younger brother, likely the youngest disciple. This is key because <clears throat> John starts as a young man, is formatted and shaped by Jesus' ministry and watching what he does, and then lives through the first generation of Christianity finding its way into the Roman Empire and through those first generation of people, watches them or knows of them all dying and lives to be the last one. And if you know somebody who's the last of their family members to die, or somebody who's that elderly that they've lost so many people that there's an opportunity, they just know life. That's kind of where John's coming from. Lift me an old man present when Jesus asked who he or Jesus was. Uh, this really gets to the point uh, about this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. It's about two-thirds chronologically through Jesus' ministry. And disciples are walking. They sit around. They take a break. They, I think, hit up one of the Starbucks of old and are sitting around having a cup of coffee. Jesus kind of looks around and says, by the way, who are people say that I am? Who, 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 what are they saying? And you can almost picture the disciples sort of in a circle and a joke, and, oh yeah, some say Elijah, and then some are, they go on, some say that, and there's probably more conversation about who people think he is, because you can imagine today, uh, ask that question into a neutral audience, and get the many answers, who do you think Jesus is? So they're going to, and my imagination, not the text, but my imagination says the disciples are kind of having fun with it, 
going, oh, what's, what, did you, what have you heard? And what is, who do you think? And then Jesus kind of clears the deck and goes, yeah, I got a question. Who do you say that I am? And my best guess is the silence falls. You know how that story ends, right? Mr. Stick his foot in his mouth is the first to step up. Peter goes, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. John watched all that happen, too. Huh. What's interesting, the story goes on with Peter. Peter steps up to be the first person in, in, of the disciples to go, you're the Christ. Now, uh, how do we kind of focus on or understand the nature of how revealing that was? We're Accept that, or many of us are, or if you're not a Christian online, you can at least know that Christians have accepted him as the Christ, as the Messiah. But John is looking, or Peter and John, the disciples, are looking at a Jewish friend of theirs. They watch them do miracles. To call him the Christ is to the fulfillment of history, is to call him God's son. It's, it's, it's a leap unbelievably beyond imagination. You just can't think these things up. So Peter's the first to get that revelation. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You can't figure it out. But the Spirit told you. But, but shortly, and this is all for extra credit. This isn't where the sermon is going. So I just don't want it held against me for uh, time elements. But uh, Peter is also the next one to get the harshest rebuke. Because Jesus says, here's where I'm headed. I'm headed to the cross. And I'm going to be forsaken. And I'm about to do my suffering because the nature of the sending of the Christ was suffering, not glorifying. What does Peter say? Not going to happen. And tries to get in Jesus' way because Peter was thinking about his way and what that would do for him, how that would hurt him, not the mission of the cross, the forgiveness of sins, the sacrifice of the Father. So John was present for all that and had to think. Uh, he was present with Jesus in the upper room. I know you've seen people, uh, the, the famous painting, you know, where all the disciples are at a table and they're all facing the camera. <laughs> and that, well, forget about it. That, that was done for the era and for the time. And it was uh, obviously an incredibly beautiful painting. It just didn't reflect what was going on. The room was, in all likelihood, um, uh, open uh, room on top of a roof uh, that, uh, you, well, consider this. If you've ever watched TV and you sort of got a bowl of popcorn you're sharing with somebody, you're propped up, you've got your legs out under, from in front of you, you're propped up on your elbow and you're getting the popcorn and trying not to get the butter all over yourself and doing like that, and there's a number of people scattered around your living room. That may reflect the intimacy more so than not. And who was right next to Jesus but John? And kind of Jesus gives him some insight. Jesus says, you know, this is going to be somebody who's going to betray me. Betray. 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 He leans over and he tells John, the one who dips his bread with me. John was present. The only disciple recorded present at the cross, the caretaker of Mary. Only disciple present at the cross. Let that sink in for a little bit. These guys followed him. 
scattered in Gethsemane, did not reappear except one, John. What does that tell you about John? Man, he was not only close and tight with Jesus, but he was ready to face whatever was going to happen to him for showing up there. He could have been next in line. And how close do you have to be to give somebody care of your mom? How much would you trust them? The first disciple to the empty tomb, but the second to enter it, it was John who was the youngest and apparently the fastest runner because um, he's all after it. He just can't wait to see Jesus, and he just tears off, boom. But John pulls up, whoop, short, doesn't go in. It looks like that, that doesn't go in. Who's he waiting for? Peter. Peter's an older man and slower, and, but Peter does what? Goes right in. <laughs> There's Peter. Insert foot, Peter. And he was hurting the most, probably. Point of that, this is just some understanding that this is the background, that John and Jesus were very close, very personal, and John lived that. John actually had some incredibly uh, heavy lifting theologically. He talked about some of the most amazing Events. For example, what we'll cover in the Gospel of John and your pastor, there's a lot of Johns going on here, your pastor John has said that later on we're going to go through a sermon series on the Gospel of John, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but the heavy lifting is in the logos. The logos is the sense of the Greek word, uh, the sense in the Greek world of what might be the rough equivalent of evolutionary biology. The Greeks were understanding that uh, there's a system. Everything is systemic. It all fits together. It all kind of interweaves. They're looking at creation. And they call this interweaving of creation and this systemic view of life the logos. And John goes, yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. And it says, in the beginning was the logos. And the Greeks are going, yep, I'm there. And the logos was with God. Yep, Greeks are there. And the Logos was God. Greeks, okay, okay, yeah, I'm so with you, okay. He was in the beginning with God. Yep, 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 so far good, so far good. And the Logos became flesh, verse 14, and pitched his tent among us. Whoa! John takes the huge concept of the Logos, all these classical Greeks would agree with, and it reduces it to a person. This Logos thing, it's Jesus. If you were amongst the 12 disciples and Jesus said, okay, I need somebody to volunteer to write a book symbolic of symbolic visuals and talk about the end times and how this is all going to end in the lesson, my guess is nobody would have raised their hand but John. John is the writer of the book of Revelation, told to write, Jesus Christ tells him, or the angel tells him, pick up his right, write this down. In fact, it's so specific that if you read through the book of Revelation, it'll go, write this down, don't write that, no, don't write that, write that down, don't write that. And in the same way he writes the Gospel of John, he weaves together this enormity and complexity and symbolism of the end times. It's really quite amazing. But I want to touch today on truth, darkness, and light, and we'll stay tuned to love. John takes these incredibly heavy, powerful images like truth, darkness, and light and brings them down to make them personal. Have you guys ever, 
if you are, are old enough, you remember Joan Rivers. Can you play that clip for us? Very often you have to say to the audience, oh, come on, can we talk? All right, let's stop this nonsense. Is Elizabeth Taylor fat or is she, can we talk here? Remember, that was her favorite phrase. Can we talk? Can we talk? That's kind of where this is all going. Can we talk here? She tried to take her humor and just bear, just peel back all the layers of humanity and talk about the bare essential truths. That's what I want to do. Can we talk? I have to sit down just a second to get a book. This is one of the most influential books that I've read ever. And the reason why I also like it, like the Gospel of John, it's easy to read. Look how thin this thing is. It's amazing. It's called The Great Divorce. And it's not about divorce in the sense of the word that we're, we're typical of. It's a book written by C.S. Lewis that talks about a fantasy, which he wrote, loves to write, a fantasy bus trip from the outskirts of hell to the outskirts of heaven. And when you arrive from the outskirts of hell, I'm kneeling down because the bus that comes up is so small compared to the enormity of the outskirts of heaven that it makes its way through the separation between a blade of grass and the dirt. And it arrives in, in eternity. And what happens is loved ones or friends come from beyond the mountains. And they're the solid people. The solid people who can walk on the grass. And the ghosts who come from the edge of Hades and hell can't because it hurts. And the, there's pain in walking until their feet become hardened by the strength and power of God's word. So it's a marvelous story of those encounters that happen between those people who come from the outskirts and have a chance to let go. For example, there's a mom whose son died when she was young. And she gets an uncle of the son who knows that he's in eternity. And all she has to do is want to see God before she sees her son. And the dialogue ensues. An artist who's got to give up all memory of every painting and say, your paintings are hanging in the walls of eternity, but you have to give up all memory of them so that you would appreciate God's work of art through you rather than your own personal. There's a, one of my favorite characters in there is another one that comes in and comes up from hell whining because the wife is in eternity and in heaven beyond the mountains while the husband is not. This makes a very interesting dialogue. And he keeps whining, don't you miss me? <laughs> and every time he would whine, he'd grow a little smaller, a little smaller, and go, Frank, Frank, don't, don't do this, Frank, don't do this. It's really quite delightful. I've preached on this, so I've kind of got it tucked away in my head until finally he winds himself out of existence. One of the most interesting things that I found in that dialogue was that uh, the, real, the reality that we'll learn again in this one God doesn't need you in heaven. How does that strike you? He does not need you in heaven. What does he do? He wants you in heaven. There it is. If you and I resist and plug and just going to fold our hands and pout and go, yeah, but blah, 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 blah. Heaven will be more as complete as it would be without us because his love fills every gap and every quarter. So that all by way of background to try to understand the nature of what we're trying to get at. And this conversation is between 
an Episcopal priest who's trying to, he's come over the mountains, he's the solid person to meet his friend who's come up from the outskirts of hell and is sort of a, what C.S. Lewis would describe as like a greasy bug on a window until he becomes solid. And what happens is, what often happens in our conversations is that we don't want to talk about how Jesus Christ, our life with God, personally affects us. We want to talk about the issues that are out there someplace, the theology. So the friend says, will you come with me to the mountains? It will hurt at first until your feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows. But will you come? The friend responds, his Episcopal priest friend, well, that's a plan. I'm perfectly ready to consider it. Of course, I should require some assurances. I should want a guarantee. You're asking me to place where I shall find a wider sphere of usefulness, a scope for talents God has given me, an atmosphere of free inquiry. In short, all that means to be civilized and to lead a spiritual life. No, screams the friend. I can promise you none of these things. No sphere of usefulness. You are not needed there at all. No scope for your talents. Only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry. For I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers. And you will see the face of God. The point Lots of times we get caught in theological discussions and we find ways to push ourselves out and away from there. And God is saying, not important, not necessary. What does it mean to you personally? The truth from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says, whether there is a metaphysical problem of truth at all, and if there is, what kind of theory might address it, are all standing issues on the theory of truth. Okay, I don't know what that means either. And I, I get it. When we take a look at the nature of truth, it, it's good to have philosophical underpinnings and academic discussions and frame of references and frame of work. But to what end? Only if you have beer, Carl. Only if you have, yeah, beer is required. Uh, <laughs> I think that is. Can I say that without John being here? Yeah. All right, next week, we'll work on that. Okay. Then, then that, that is the point. Whereas John tries to tell us this is what truth is. It's Jesus and what he does. That's what truth is, and Jesus would say that. I am the truth. Now, can you take that and build theological constructs in large, tall buildings? Yes, you can, but you don't need to. Here it is as simple as this. Truth is personal. Truth loves you. Truth died for you. Who he is and what he does. It's Jesus. Philosophies of darkness are right there, but we love to play with those as a culture. And look, I don't want to be very careful. I am a Star Wars aficionado. I've watched the movies, I've dissected them. Our family and I, we go see them together. Uh, but I tell you what it does it betrays a philosophy and a theology of life the understanding of the struggle of light and darkness, but it really leaves it into the human context as though we can resolve the struggle. That's the misleading part. 
I looked for some good quotes, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Don't be sad, uh, what I found from the Albert. Don't be sad because people, uh, don't be sad because of people. They will all die. <laughs> this guy kind of messed up on the slide. They will, don't be sad because of people. They will all die. This I found from the Philosophy of uh, Darkness, which is a website you can go to to find people who kind of carry forward a very pessimistic philosophical point of view in life. I love what Albert Einstein said, God, not, God did not create evil, just as darkness is the absence of light, evil is the absence of God. That made me think, huh, maybe that's what hell is, the absence of God. And that's why it's hell. Darkness, oh, it's easy. It's what Jesus experienced for us. The darkness on the day of crucifixion was nothing compared to the darkness inside of Jesus' soul. Emptied of all light. He who was the light was emptied of all light. And he would quote Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a way to illustrate all the darkness he has sucked out of me in this world and into his own soul. And he would suffer that darkness, that eternal darkness in that moment of time, in that moment outside of time. So I wouldn't have to, so I would never go there. This is what darkness is. It's what Jesus did for you and for me, that we might know and see the light. Light, complex scientific process. Einstein's theory of relativity, relationship between time and light. I've actually studied from, science, from a scientific perspective as deep as I could go to a biblical perspective as deep as I could go with that too, the connection between light and time. And even if you take a look, what God did on day one was create light, probably space and time in order to keep putting stuff in along the way. It's very complex, very hard to understand. Photosynthesis itself, we, it's a process that is multi-level, multi-point, multi-perspective. What does Jesus say about it? It's just simple. I am the light of the world, John 8. To kind of draw this to a conclusion, all these heavy, big theological concepts from darkness to light, the logos from Gospel of John, which we'll get on, all the ways in which we try to distance ourselves from God's word and create theological constructs to discuss and argue and debate. It all doesn't mean a thing. John brings it down to this. Children, fathers, young men. The concluding portion of our text today is, finds this rhythm. John keeps going, children. Giving us an understanding of the affectionate way in which Jesus met him, and the relationship and the friendship and the love that they shared is found in the way he addresses us, children. Not fellow disciples, not fellow saints like Paul would, but John's message is, hey kids, hey son, daughter, listen up. Dads, those of you who've been around the block, here's what God says to you. Young men, here's the nature of what's going on there. He makes it very personal. It takes it out of the theological construct and brings it down to something real, something tangible, something personal. Jesus. In his name is where we celebrate, Kepona Aloha, understanding the deep love of God.
is really, really personal. In his name, amen.